Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball Daily, the podcast we talk about baseball 365 days a year, unless it's a leap year, and then we're going to do another one. I've been doing this every single day since October 24th, 2012. It's now the 8th day of June, 2016. And I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this from Sully Baseball Studio in Palo Alto, California, the birthplace of Oakland A's manager, Bob Melvin, and just down the 101 from AT&T Park, the home of the, well, let's just call it the 2016 world champion, San Francisco Giants. Now, look, at I'm not going to get political on this podcast. I have my political leanings. You could probably figure them out if you listen to me closely. But I, you know what? I, I don't equate someone's political stances with their content to their character. It's just it's people have different opinions on things. I have people who listen to the show who are very, very liberal. I have people listening to the show who are very, very conservative. I've always thought of myself more down the middle politically. Um, I think that that's, over the years, the way the spectrum has has gone, uh, we've seen the, the middle, the, the left have taken over the middle. It's weird. It, it's, how people label themselves is pretty strange. But, I, you know, I, I, I know it's a polarizing thing to talk about politics. And there's so much politics everywhere. Uh, in the in the news, and you you know some stations lean this way, some stations lean that way. There's bias here, there's bias there. This is all you know. People also have a tendency to you know gravitate towards commentators' news that fit their own political point of view. You see that like crazy. You see that like crazy where you have like, okay, if you're super conservative, you're going to be watching Fox or you're super liberal, you're going to be watching MSNBC or going to watch the New Turks or whatever, you know, go, go into a deeper dive. And so you, there's a lot of confirmation bias that goes on here that you, you, and I find myself doing that too. I'm as guilty as anyone when I start hearing someone that is contradicting something that I really think or feel I'll zone out or I'll flip away. or and we, we do that. It's the thing that makes this avalanche of information that we have so great but also so dangerous. It's great because we have access to all of it, but it's dangerous because we tend to cling to what we're comfortable to. And it can skew our point of view of reality. And a show like the one that I'm doing now, a podcast like the one that I'm doing now, should be a respite. You should be able to come here and know that it's going to be apolitical. And if I think or feel anything, and I've, I've expressed, someone accused me of doing uh, a self-righteous, what was it, the self-righteous PC rants I got accused of doing at one point. Um, the fact of the matter is, if I have anything that I'm thinking or feeling that I think are relevant to this discussion of baseball and sports and culture, it's not coming from a political angle. It's not coming from a political point of view. It's coming from my own personal point of view. Now, it was election day. Uh, I'm actually, when I'm recording this, is before the polls are closed. But it's looking more and more like the two nominees are going to be Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump. I, I, I don't think it's a political statement to say, Trump being the nominee is bizarre. 
It, I actually, I honestly don't think that's a political statement because if you're a conservative and you said, I, you know, a Marco Rubio, a Ted Cruz, a Kasich, a, a, you know, Jeb Bush, a Walker, whomever it is, you could say, okay, here's someone who, uh, you know, someone may or may not agree with, but you could say, okay, they have this credentials, they have this experience, they have this knowledge of the topic. You know, uh, Trump doesn't have any governmental experience. And while that's, for some people, an advantage, I, I don't see how that's a real advantage. If someone's going to be the head of the government, I think they should have some experience, I don't know, in government. You know, it's, I'm, I'm weird that way. I'm, I'm really weird that way. And the thing that I was thinking about is that this is, obviously this is an example of a of celebrity culture, and this is obviously a, the image of who he is, of being, is what got him to this point, and also a really crowded Republican uh, field allowed him to do this. Uh, the fact that he was able to win states with 30% of the vote because there were 5,000 people on the ballot is what caused this to happen. But I was thinking about something, that he is this loud, bombastic New Yorker with, I'm not quite sure if, his, if he's as successful as he makes himself out to be. He's more of a brand, he's more of an image, and more of someone who kind of represented a... Uh, a New York of a different time, you know, this sort of the excess of New York and the the spending of New York and the idea of this success and the, you know, this, this success you can point to this, that, or the other thing, of which how much he can really take credit for is up in the air, made me stop and think I had a very strange concept hit me in the head at one point today. I couldn't get it out, and I'm just going to say it right now. Just picture this, all right? The Republican nominee for president, George M. Steinbrenner III. Why didn't he think of that? You know, if he had lived and he hadn't started the, you know, clearly he was fading by the mid, you know, 2000s. But, man, if he was born a little at a different time, or if he were, you know, a little more savvy. Could you imagine President, you know, maybe not electing George Steinbrenner, but how, how is Steinbrenner as a presidential candidate more absurd than Donald Trump? How is that crazier? I would, I would argue that Steinbrenner would make a better presidential candidate than Donald Trump. I would argue that he would be able to point to his achievements and his accomplishments in a way that would be, oh, I don't know, uh, 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 be able to make it more relevant for the job, make himself in a position where he is a executive, where he is in charge of a lot of people. I mean, when you stop and think about what this candidacy we're seeing and how it unfolded it's about image it's about perception the whole concept of trump being this super successful guy i mean you don't see people at you know harvard business school or you know these or 
at these giant MBA programs teaching Trump, you know, being, you know, teaching the, the wisdom of Donald Trump there, because it's more of this is the role that he played in the 1980s. He kind of became the, the, the poster boy for the Robin Leach lifestyle, the rich and famous, when we became obsessed with that sort of dynasty, falcon crest, look at how much we're making, look at how decadent we're living in the 1980s. You know, Trump became the symbol of that. Well, Steinbrenner was a big symbol of that as well. I mean, he really emerged in the late 70s, but all throughout the 80s, the way that he oversaw the Yankees and threw money around and became a very early uh, adopter of, you know, bringing in free agents and bringing in superstars to New York and pointing out that when he took over the Yankees in the, you can, I mean, the narrative that you could create that when he took over the Yankees and they were owned by CBS and they were amidst a terrible downturn in their fortunes that they went from, you know, basically uninterrupted from Babe Ruth to Mickey Mantle constantly in the playoffs, in the, in the World Series. There were no playoffs, but constantly winning the pennant. And as a franchise, they were an absolute mess by the early 70s. They had no star power. They had lost the city to the Mets. Yankee Stadium was old and crumbling. There was no fanfare with the Yankees, and there was, you know, save for a couple of seasons here or there where they put together some winning teams, and they were developing the Bobby Mercers and the Ron Bloombergs and the Horace Clarks and Thurman Munsons of the world. The team was really, you know, let's face it, in the early 70s, early to mid-70s, they were a nondescript franchise that when George Steinbrenner bought the team when the hell did he buy the team? I think he bought them in 19, was it 1972? Hold on, let me look it up here. I think I have it here. Um, but when he bought the club, um, yeah, 1972. Uh, no, no, 1973. That's right, 73 he bought the Yankees from CBS. The selling price was $10 million. That gets you a reserve infielder these days. Uh, and he took over the team and along and, and there were several other partners that he had with him. Um, and uh, what was it? Uh, Michael Burke was the other big partner here. And he was he took over the club, basically rearranged the management of the team, had them play in Shea Stadium for a couple of years, refurbished Yankee Stadium, and by the time they re-entered Yankee Stadium in 1976, they were on a streak where they went to the World Series in 76, 77, 78, 81, making the postseason in 80 as well. In fact, the only time they missed the, the playoffs in that period of time was the 1979 season. That was the year that Thurman Munson died. And the Yankees were brought back to their glory. And you could see that you could look at, you know, if you try to create a narrative, the whole make America great again, Steinbrenner could say, you know, presidential candidate George Steinbrenner could say, look at what I did. I took a Yankee team that no one thought could be great again, and under my leadership, 
turned it around, turned the stadium around, rebuilt the infrastructure of the stadium, made the team great again. And then, of course, in the 90s became the greatest dynasty of the free agent era, going to all those World Series, going to all the postseason appearances, being the gold standard of franchises. And Steinbrenner can point and crow to that, that in, a, in an economic model, we created the, the team that could not be beaten. And I could do that again. You know, I'm a winner. Where I go, I win. And when things, you know, and I was, I was booted out of the team. I was suspended from the team. And when I came back triumphantly, we got back to the playoffs and the World Series. And my decisions and my leadership did this, that, or the other thing. You could say you could, you could print out the red Make America Great hats and, and, and hear him saying it and using the same rhetoric. I mean, if we had known that you were allowed to run for president with these few credentials, Steinbrenner would have been an amazing presidential candidate. He, he knows how to play to the press. He knows how to, he would be the candidate. All the stuff that makes Trump the media magnet that he is, that was Steinbrenner. Absolutely that was Steinbrenner. Steinbrenner couldn't live without reporters and, and cameras facing him. I always love it when I'm hearing like Trump saying something like, I'm, you know, I hate these reporters. I don't want to, can't trust the reporters. He lives for the reporters. And Steinbrenner was the same way. He lives for the press. He lives living in the back pages. And if we had known, this would have been an amazing candidacy. And of course, there would have been as many questions about the reality of that as well. Why did the Yankees go on that great streak in the 1970s? Was it because Steinbrenner brought in all these big free agents? Or was it because Gabe Paul put together a terrific team and absolutely swindled the Cleveland Indians for trades that brought in several terrific players, including Chambliss and Nettles, and made some deals with the California Angels and built up the team of which Steinbrenner, Whining and Dining, Reggie Jackson, and Rich Gossage and Catfish Hunter were the cherries on top that were the sexy headline-grabbing moves. But when you saw that when Steinbrenner, when Gabe Paul was gone and Steinbrenner was really you know shuffling around, shuffling the manager, shuffling the GMs, they couldn't get back to the playoffs, no matter how many huge free agents he brought in the 80s. You look at the 80s, when the time when he was spending the most money, or not the most money, but like he was outspending everyone like crazy and bringing in big superstars. They couldn't, they couldn't beat the Tigers or Blue Jays or Orioles or Red Sox in that streak because he didn't put together the team wisely. He would just bring in big free agents without any thought of you know, what was really happening, what would really work. And you remember around the same time that Donald Trump was, was filing for bankruptcy for the first time, maybe the second time, I don't know, his great fall from grace, was also the time that Steinbrenner was suspended again. And that was around the time that I first moved to New York City, and people were chanting at Yankee games, George must go, George must go. Because he was reviled. I think that was around the same time that uh, the whole Marla Maples scandal and everything was going on with Trump, and that may have been a little bit before. But they both were having their downfall right around the same time. They both had their comeback, 
And how much of their comeback was real and how much of it was a TV creation is really up for grabs. The team was rebuilt by Stick, Michael, and Buck Showalter. As he, under Steinberg, he would have traded away Pettit and Jeter and Bernie Williams and everyone. He constantly tried to trade him away. And the success of the team, in some ways, was in spite of George, not because of him. And after they lost the 2001 World Series, and Steinbrenner huffed and puffed and said, oh, there are going to be some changes, there are going to be some changes. He went out and he started signing the Giambis and everyone in the world, and they couldn't get back to winning the World Series. At least not until 2009, and then he died. But there was a certain amount of revisionist history with George Steinbrenner. And you saw it like crazy when he died. When they talked about how you know he was a winner, he always put, you know, Yankee fans saying like he always he did everything he could to put a winning product on the field and you know he made the Yankees great, he made the Yankees great. And I said, I remember the George Must Go chance. I remember people booing Steinberg. I remember people saying that he was ruining it. Remember that episode when George gets hired by uh Steinbrenner on Seinfeld? And George does this rant against Steinbrenner about how he's destroyed and ruined this once great franchise. Well, that was the way Yankee fans thought. He was the person that was ruining the team. Right around the time Donald Trump was dealing with his bankruptcy. But you could have tilted the narrative. The the narrative was tilted by the end of Steinbrenner's life. That... George was someone who always put a winner on the field and did everything he could and made the Yankees great year in and year out. That wasn't true. And how much of it was because of him is up for debate. But he would have made, you know, you could argue that what he did as the head of the Yankees was an executive power. You could say that, that, his dealings with the with the league and with the 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 commissioners and the other owners were was like dealing with Congress and dealing with uh, legislature. I mean, I honestly believe that if the qualifications to be a a presidential candidate for a major party includes being a television personality, being a larger-than-life figure, and someone who's media savvy. Why not? Why would George have been a bad candidate? Let me ask you a question. If someone told you Mark Cuban was running for president, I mean, he'd have to buy a tie. But would that be any more outrageous than Trump? I actually would have relished seeing a George Steinbrenner candidacy. You know, and he had his, you know, his first, it's funny, his first uh, uh, um, suspension from baseball had to do with some illegal donations to uh, the Richard Nixon campaign, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, Steinbrenner was a big, big, you know, flag-waving patriot and everything like that. He was born on the 4th of July. I don't think that that wouldn't escape people's mind. You know, he was, and he was a small businessman. Or was he? I don't know if he was a small, I mean, he was a, he was a business owner um, and was uh, like a shipyard 
you know, he, he ran a shipyard in, um, the, uh, in Cleveland and then came over and took over the, uh, took over the Yankees. He was a Clevelander, but that's neither here nor there. And conservative, you know, no, no beards, no long hair. I mean, he would have been a darling. If only he knew, if only he knew that this would have been what you needed to be a presidential candidate, man, he would have been something. Hell, he may even have gotten my vote. Go to MLBReports.com to check out the latest edition of Who Owns Baseball. Go to SullyBaseball.wordpress.com, like me on Facebook, rather than iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. This has been the Sully Baseball Daily Podcast for the 8th day of June 2016. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan, voting for George M. Steinbrenner, and you can call me Sully.